Hi everybody, this is your host Ben Klenner and welcome to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome back, everybody out there in podcast land. I am excited to bring another interview for you guys today. But first, would you guys please mind subscribing if you think that uh, this is cool content and that it's going in uh, in a direction that you want to follow, please click that subscribe button. Uh, that's going to help us get more visible, more views and get this word out there. So, um, today we have the interview that I recorded with Chris Ferreira. Uh, he is one of my mentors and I took my little uh, portable recording device over to his place and had a really great chat uh, walking around his garden. So we start in the veggie garden and we talk about um, health of plants and health of soil um, and he's, his whole place is a, a demonstration, an example here in Perth, of what people can to do to retrofit their house, uh, to make it more sustainable, to make it more regenerative. So he actually has open houses there, and we refer to that in this uh, interview. Um, and the next one is coming up. That's why I wanted to get this out there ASAP. So um, yeah, listen to the interview. Uh, let me know what you think. Really want to hear your feedback. And um, you can hear the birds in the background. There's a few... Um, planes, but I try to edit those out. But without further ado, here's the interview with Chris Ferreira. Welcome to the show, Chris Ferreira. Thank you very much. Great to be here, Ben. And we're out in your backyard right mm. now. With the chooks purring away in the corner there, scratching and digging around in the dirt. Mm-hmm. So I really love your place. Um, and we'll go for a bit of a walk mm. around here, mm. but but let's just back up to uh, where we met. It was yeah. a few years ago now, wasn't it? On <laughs> it was. a uh, Garden Gurus TV show. It was, it was. I remember, and you were um, this very quiet but um, dedicated um, landscaper, and we had a bit of a chat, and I could see there was a lot more to you than just um, just a bloke who is on the end of a shovel grunting away. So. We had a chat, and then from there, you've become involved with some of the projects that we're doing, and yeah, it's been wonderful. Mm -hmm. That's for me. That's how it always works. People sort of stand out or jump out at you, and all of my amazing connections. That's how it's happened. Yeah, yeah. And so now you have um, all these connections, and you have um, all this stuff that's happened. You have this beautiful. Um, piece of property, mm. uh, a, a suburban um, mm. property, but it's really an example of permaculture and um, sustainable or regenerative living. W what would you say are some of the things that have 
gotten you to this place? Were some of the sort of foundational things in your life that have gotten you to this place? Well, I guess, you know, being an optimist, um, having the worst soils in the world as your classroom is actually, you can't help but discover that it all comes back to the soil. Mm. So if we don't look after the soil in Perth, with our climate and how low the fertility is there, you just, it doesn't work. So you're kind of forced to spend that time and that energy trying to get um, the landscape improved. So for me, the foundation always has been and always will be the soil. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so you did some um, study in environmental science, is that right? Uh, I did forestry. I grew up on a farm, um, which was uh, at a place called Wellard, which is about 40 minutes south of Perth. Very poor sandy soil. And my dad had decided, for whatever reason, to put 30-odd horses on there. So it very quickly turned into a dust bowl. So for me, I learnt very quickly that as the land degraded and declined in its health and its value and its aesthetic appeal... I, I was getting stronger and, and, and obviously growing and I began to realise that if we don't look after the land, it can't look after us. And one of the first things I saw the horses do was ring back all the trees. Mm. So I made that connection between the quality of the soil and trees and they basically have been the cornerstone of my life. I went and studied forestry at ANU. And then I travelled around the world and that just reinforced for me that wherever civilization has collapsed or wherever civilization has flourished, there was always the um, theme of land management. If it was degraded, it had turned into dust-choked remnants. Um, they destroyed the land that sustained them. You go to places like England, as a contrast, some of the most beautiful farmscapes you'll ever see, hedgerows and copses of trees, and they've been farmed like that for centuries. Mm. So it reinforced for me that if we don't look after the land and we don't look after the soil, then our civilization is in peril. Mm -hmm. So you grew up on a farm, mm. um, you, you saw the importance of trees, and then your um, travelling reinforced that. It did, and it made me... I knew when I came home that I was going to... Re, re, reclaim our farm and I just threw myself headlong into that um, and I've always said the best classroom anyone can be given is a plot of land mm. it's mm -hmm. the most wonderful teacher and that piece of land we spent huge amounts of time about 12 years revegetating it and I say to people for me it was the it was the living embodiment of the triple bottom line it's amazing how many people don't know what the triple bottom line is. And so I explained to them, well, we all know about the economic bottom line. We have that sort of rammed down our throats by the uh, neoliberals. Mm. Um, but it's the triple bottom line says that if we ignore the social and the environmental, then the whole thing will collapse because it's actually not just a, a one, one pillar. It's actually three pillars that make it up. And some even talk about the spiritual dimension as well, which certainly makes sense. So for me, when the land was degraded, then that meant we couldn't feed our animals. So we had to import all of our food. We had to then have vets coming in because the horses would get colic. So I learned pretty early on that by having a degraded piece of land, it actually literally impacted on our bottom line. Mm. We made nowhere near as much money. And then from a social perspective, the, ha the, the property was miserable. It was boiling hot and windswept in summer and freezing cold and windswept in winter. And, and either way, it was just not a nice place to be. So spending that time improving that landscape was, was uh, 
just such an important way to make that difference. So that's so interesting, Chris, because um, I was just—I've been uh, listening to a few talks by um, Joel Salatin, mm. and how he um, integrates, learns from nature, and integrates yes. all the different things um, in succession in his farm with the cows, and then the chickens, and then the turkeys, and the pigs. Mm. Um, and so there's a there's a way of doing it that's actually uh, copying nature mm. and and creating more productivity. Very much so. And, you know, it links in with the whole Taoist philosophy, you know, that which I grapple with. I do nothing and I leave nothing undone. And if we just, and it talks about standing back and watching. And we, as human beings, we just don't do that enough. Mm. And a garden forces you, in a sense, to do that because obviously you are dictated to in terms of the climate and therefore the plants that you could grow at different seasons. So, in a sense, if you are really following that natural cues, you, you tend to then start to fall into line and learn and watch and, and adapt to the, the natural cycle. So it's a, it's a really important thing for humans to be doing. We mm -hmm. live in such an artificial world where we feel that we can construct and control everything, which of course we can only do to a, a certain point. And mm -hmm. um, getting back and spending time in nature reminds you of... Um, just the fact that we are just part of the natural cycle of things. Yeah. And it can be such a meditative thing if you let it mm. be. Like right now I'm just chilling out in, in your garden. There's, there's lots of birds around. For a, for a suburban neighbourhood, I feel like I'm almost in the country. It's And we've got our fire pit over there and on a, on a night when we have the fire going, uh, without the interruption from the odd bogan, um, you could be out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It, it is. And, and that's... You know, one of my one of my mantras is that every single person should be having as their aspirational goal to make their garden or their farm the biggest room of their home, or you know, in a broader landscape, the farm. You know, make it all a garden, mm. um, because when we create that, firstly we bring nature in, and then nature draws us out. Mm -hmm. You want to spend time outdoors. You. You crave it, and human beings are hardwired to want that experience. We, we are, no matter what we might try and do to deny it, we are part of this earth, and that sounds cheesy and corny coming out, but it's the truth. And therefore, when we when we disconnect ourselves from nature, we suffer. Yeah, I mean that's that's what part of uh, this the mission of this podcast is mm. is to show people that we are connected yeah. in so many different ways. You yes. know, it's called the probiotic life, so it's yes. about um, the micros, but you know the interactions um, with the animals and the plants um, and the, all the lessons. I mean, that's where we learn all of our net lessons and you know get all of our pharmaceuticals from mm. is from nature. Absolutely, Na nature provides everything for us, um, and you know this is this is the generation where we will just when, when we will reconnect to nature and it's already happening and mm. um for every crazy idiotic thing that's happening around the world there is a quieter more noble more grounded and ultimately more truthful um experiment going on as well mm -hmm. so i i see the duality of it the the insane and the insidious and the ridiculous and then quietly juxtaposed is is extraordinary things going on and it's it's no coincidence and i was just talking this morning and to me i bring it back to the yin and the yang you know the top 
for the top, there's always the bottom. For the front, there is always the back. For the crest, there is always the, the, the trough. And it's the same with everything in life. When there's bad, there is always good. And, mm. and we need to remember that because there's a lot going on in the world at the moment where people think, oh, my God, it's just gone mad and it's crazy and therefore everything is wrong. But, you know, that very simple, that ancient yin and yang reminds us that it's it, there's always the duality. We can't know joy without knowing sorrow. We can't mm. know fear without love and, and it all boils down to that and where does that lead me in relation to the garden? The garden becomes an expression of love in a sense because what you're doing is you're if you follow from a fountain of love, love leads to hope and to faith and to trust and to connections and, and to life and, and therefore... A garden is a manifestation of that. Of that, you're you're committing, you're providing something, you're nurturing something, and you're doing it not necessarily not necessarily for yourself. Um, you're doing it for people that might come into the future, or for other um, people in your community, but of course for the wider ecological community. So, in that sense, um, a gar a garden becomes a very powerful way for you to to recharge, reboot, and to remind yourself of what actually is important in this world. Mm -hmm. Very wise words, Chris. Mm. Well, it's, um, it is true, you know, and, and, and what I love, and there's a great quote by my, one of my heroes, Wayne Dyer, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago, one of the great spiritual teachers, and if anyone has not heard of Wayne, Dr. Wayne Dyer, I'd, I'd urge you to read and listen to some of his stuff. And one of his quotes is, there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. And um, that's such a powerful and hopeful expression. But I look at environmentalism and when I first started, it was its own independent pursuit. And I look now in 2017 and you now have doctors and you now have other health professionals and you have engineers and you have scientists that are all coming out and saying, a disconnection to nature is causing us problems. Mm. So who would have thought 15 years ago that you would get hardcore researchers at university saying kids need to spend time with their hands in the dirt. It is compromising their immune development if they do not have connection to nature. We're now seeing the explosion of nature play and all of this is reminding me that there is nothing more powerful than an idea that whose time has come. So that all these seemingly uh, disparate and disconnected disciplines in, in our society are actually coming to the same point. And I see more and more of those connections and um, I know one of the things we've talked about is is that spooky correlation between the, the, the probiotic health of the soil mm. and the probiotic health of a healthy human being. Yeah. The, the mirroring of that is, is spooky. It's just uncanny. The, ref the, the similarities and the interconnectedness. Mm. Someone who really um, connected that for me was Graham Sait hmm. talking about, you know, uh, the, the relationship between our microbes and our gut yes. and roots on a plant and the microbes. Hmm. So similar. And then, um, you know, he goes into nutrition and all that sort of stuff. So um, that, you know, that's, that was a turning point for me to be like, oh, wow, this is really all connected. It is. And, and, you know, for me as an educator, I see it as such a wonderful message to get to people that, you know, 
growing your own food, growing your own plants and feeding that soil is such a powerful thing to be able to teach people. And I love saying to people now, you know, we diss this idea of organic farming. And when I say we, I mean, you know, conservative sectors of society will say, oh, that's what the loony left the fringe do. And then when you look at the the history of humans, the last 12 to 15,000 years that we have decided to live together in groups and become agrarian, agricultural, and that, of course, led to industrial and everything that comes from there. But we are still fundamentally an agricultural society. In other words, we rely on a certain percentage of our population to grow food so that we can devote the rest of our time to other pursuits, science, mm-hmm. literature, everything else that we do. And when you think of that 12 to 15,000 years, and I say to people, if you were to go back in time and imagine going in Doctor Who's TARDIS and you went back and saw your great-grandfather or great-grandmother, there is almost a certainty that as you get further back in your own history, your great-grandparents, etc., were closer and more linked to the land. So it's this, this generation that is the most disconnected from food and food growing. But where I'm going with this is if you went back in time and, and did see your great-grandparents at their allotment and you said, wow, your plants look amazing, what fertiliser you, do you use? They would give you a strange and blank expression because... We have grown up with a world where we assume everyone knows about fertilizers, but fertilizers are only the last 70 years of that 12 to 15,000 year history. Mm. Prior to that, every single skerrick of food on the planet was grown organically. Mm. We are all here because of organic farming. And secondly, fertilizer is, is a construct, as we know, that's pretty much came out of the um, the Second World War with mm. that excess and massive stockpiles of urea and phosphorus from making bombs. And um, through that, we led to the industrialised agricultural system. But prior to that, people understood, your great-grandparents would have understood that the reason their plants look so wonderful is they knew, consciously or otherwise, that they had to feed the soil. Mm. And they may not have known about the soil biota. They would not have known about the extraordinary wealth of biology down there, but they understood in a way that we're only just beginning to reconnect to now, that they could not grow food without that. Mm. So Mm -hmm. from their perspective, they might not have had the scientific understanding, but they had a deep, innate understanding and connection, which we are now beginning to rediscover. Yeah. So I find that really, really heartening and powerful. And I use any opportunity I do to say to people that um, fertilisers don't grow food. Mm. Mm-hmm. Soil grows food. Healthy, living, vibrant soil grows food. And if someone challenges that and says, well, I've seen studies that show, you know, if you put on super or urea, your plants will grow faster. And I'll go, <clears throat> I can't deny that. They probably will. But then let's look a little deeper. And if the only thing you're giving your plants is nitrogen and phosphorus and maybe a bit of potassium, how do you expect those plants to have the broad suite of nutrients and the density of those nutrients that we need to be strong and healthy? Mm-hmm. So the deeper yeah. you look, the more that you realise that human health and the viability of our civilizations now and into the future, <coughs> excuse me, is is totally bound up and connected to the health of the soil. Yeah, yeah. And I can see um, the outworking of your... Um, uh, the, the way that you subscribe to that and um, understand that in your garden mm. around you. Mm. Uh, you know, we're hanging out near your veggie bed, yeah. uh, near the, the chickens at the back there, and you can see everything's just um, full of life. It's mm. growing. 
Um, this time of year, you know, Perth looks a little bit greener, mm-hmm. which yes, is nice. That's right. <laughs> But, um, yeah, do you, do you want to actually show us a little bit around or yeah, take yeah. us around? Yeah, look, and let's have a look. And, again, when we have the home opens and our next home opens the 16th and the 17th of September. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what we say is we show to people and, and you dig down in the soil here, scratching, scratching, and um, you can see that the soil, um, we feed it constantly with organic matter. So that's composts, manures. We put zeolite and bentonite because our sandy soils need that to help hold the water and the nutrients in place. We give it rock dust and we feed it with fish and seaweed solution. And then we put a good um, mulch on top, which has got lots of nutrients in it. So we're constantly feeding the soil to feed our plants. And you can see that that this bed, and let's have a look at this bed over here, which sure. is the straw bale bed. Um, which is a great idea that I that someone told me about. So you use bales of hay for the for the sides, and they of course only last a certain period of time. They last maybe about eight or nine months. And by the way, I've given this bed some time off. It's been in fallow. We just had a bit of mustard on here, so it hasn't been worked for a while. And and the other thing that your great grandparents would have known is that you need to rest the soil. Again, if your if your soil is the thing that grows food, just like mum or dad being the one who provides um, food for the family by working. They need rest as well. So um, you can see the soil here is dark in colour. It's beautiful. You can see all that fungal hyphae in it's there as well. Going crazy. Gets me excited. And and when you <laughs> and when you pull away from here, look at all those worms. Look in there. at it all, and and look at the fact that it's holding itself together. Yeah. You know this this is real soil. And when I look at one of the great things that a human being can do, a human being, I believe to to be great. Um, should be leaving in their space improved and and restored soils and landscapes. It's one of the great duties of every human mm-hmm. being because so much of our farmland has been destroyed. Up to a third of our farmland has been destroyed over that 12 to 15,000 years of human settlement, mm-hmm. at, you know, in agrarian civilizations. And there's that wonderful quote which David Bellamy made famous in... Um, the, the amazing film called Week Today, What Tomorrow, made by the late, the late great David, um, Barry Oldfield. And, he, and David Bellamy says, human beings have marched across the face of the earth and left only deserts in their footprints. And you look at all the civilizations that have collapsed and you look at the bread bowl, the original bread bowl of the world, Mesopotamia, which is Persia. So it's Egypt, it's Iran, it's Iraq, it's Syria, it's Lebanon. And those are dust-choked, despotic, uh, sorry, they're, they're dust-choked remnants, uh, desert cities now. Humans had, as they evolved and moved out of Africa, they had the choice of the world to live. They didn't choose to live in a desert. They turned it into a desert. Mm-hmm. And when you look at regimes where it is eating itself, where the civilization has collapsed, there is always, always some environmental collapse that uh, uh, predates that collapse of a civilization. Mm-hmm. And conversely, when civilizations are functioning, they're beautiful, they're prosperous, they're joyous places to live, there is always strong, healthy respect and integrity for the biological systems. Yeah. And as you mentioned before, um, this is a place where people can come and see that in action. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you have these open houses yeah. and you've got one coming up. 16th and 17th of September. So that's a Saturday, Sunday. And so what, what, do, what do people do? What's the experience like when, when people come here? Yeah, well, it's a very intimate experience in the sense that um, we're, we're opening up our home in our garden and this is, this is 
a work of art, really, for myself and my wife and our, my family, my three kids. And so with the tours last about an hour to an hour and a half and we show everything that we've done to transform the home and the garden. And um, we say it's, an, it's a glimpse into what Perth needs to be in, to survive and thrive in the 21st and the 20th, 22nd century and beyond. In other words, you may not like the style of my house, that's fine, but the fundamental drivers for what we've done uh, are absolutely critical, which is halving our water consumption. Every single one of us as West Australians in this part of the world, we have to learn to use, do better with less, half Mm -hmm. the water that we use. We need to learn how to rein in our ravenous power bills, not by building dumb houses that need artificial heating and cooling, but learning how the ancient art of using landscaping and smart design of houses to, to buffer us against the extremes of our climate. And... This is an example of the garden as the biggest room of the home. And that's probably the most important take-home message is you have to create a garden where you blend and you morph the house and the garden. I've often said that the difference between a house and a home is a house it might be a big, shiny, three-bedroom, four-bathroom McMansion, you know, that mm-hmm. lists well and has form, sorry, you know, and it appeals to a certain demographic, but it's not a home because it doesn't actually have what's essential for human health and happiness, which is a connection to nature. So if you've built an enormous house on a small block, you can't help but only have a tiny pocket handkerchief piece of garden. But if you spend the time making a home, that means you're committing to creating a garden as a really important part of that. And the blending of the two makes you healthier and makes your family connections stronger and more resilient as well. Mm-hmm. That, that's uh, what I love about what you've done here, Chris, is um, it's not just the garden and it's not just the home, it's everything. Mm. And, um, you know, a lot of what you've done is using what you already had here, like um, mm. one of the permaculture heroes David Holmgren talks about, is retrofitting. Yes, you know, it's, yes. It's not about yes. uh, wiping the slate no, clean and starting right. again, using what you've got. Exactly. Um, so we're we're down here at, mm. at the the, at the back, back end, the, the yes. back end of the the garden. Yep. Um, but let's have a look look a little bit more around, and I'd love mm. um, for you to explain some of the other things that you've done mm. um, to your garden and also to your house. Sure. Okay. And so this is the back of the garden, and uh, we have a gorgeous big jacaranda, um, which is wonderful and a, and a centerpiece for the garden. But it also means that these garden beds limp along until the sun rises higher in the sky. So for the winter months, this garden sort of slows down. But, um, you know, we're walking past the fire pit. We've got the tree house and the sand pit. And um, I say to people, again, if you want the garden to be the real PlayStation, and that's obviously having a dig at the idea that kids spend so much time in front of screens, you've got to give them something that's going to attract them to go Mm. outside. Um, so having a diverse garden with lots of different things makes a difference. And the greatest compliment, we're just going through the, the side gate. The greatest compliment we had was when um, my 17-year-old stepdaughter and her friends, they wanted to have their birthday party here. You know, they wanted to have them hang out and have the fire going. And, and it's just is a cool garden. And I, I just thought, how wonderful is that? I was grumpy at first thinking, oh, these drunken yobbos are going to be everywhere. And then I thought about it and I went, Chris, pull your head in. That's a wonderful compliment. Mm. We've stopped here because under the house we have the grey water system and the rainwater tank. And the grey water system is so important. 
Um, that's about a half of our water consumption in the garden has come from the laundry and the shower. Mm. If you have a big family and a decent-sized garden, it is madness, madness not to have a grey water system. They are just critical because otherwise that water would have just gone to collect with all the other sewerage water and dumped in the ocean. Whereas now this water is being used in my garden and in Perth, half of our water now is manufactured through reverse osmosis, desalination. Half of our water and the energy that's used to make that water and then store it and then move it to your garden is, is just crazy. Whereas perfectly good uh, grey water substitutes most of my watering. I mean, in, in a lot of the uh, other places in the world and different um, time periods, people would say it's mm. madness to put clean drinking water I know. on your garden. I know. Uh, look, I couldn't agree with you more. And look, I'm all for health regulations. They, that's why we don't have pandemics of cholera and typhoid and all of that. But I think we've gone a little bit extreme. When you see a health department publication that says why you shouldn't drink rainwater, I go, really? Mm. Come on. And again, I guess that's where I, I try and draw the line, try and say, look, I'm not opposed to the amazing advances that, that we, we have, you know, we've, we've learned and discovered. But along the way, we should never forget the things that are important from the past. And so when I talked about the fact that fertiliser and that whole um, industrialised agriculture, whilst that has given us the green revolution and lifted a lot of people out of poverty, we, just as we have to wean ourselves off coal, we have to wean ourselves off that as the, the, the mode of operation. We have to start to recognise that there have been limits to that. We can't continue mm. doing that into the future. We need to get the balance right. Mm -hmm. So learn and use all the good things we've learned, soil testing and, and conservation farming, but we also need to remember that managing the health of the soil is absolutely critical to food production now and into the future. Mm -hmm. And um, just to add on to that, you know, we're looking at this grey water system mm. and we're talking about all the, this um, technology that, that's come about that, that people have invented and we're using. Mm. And then think about Perth and um, the Swan River, mm. how dead it is because yes. of uh, the, the green revolution. Mm. Yeah, look, that's a really, really important point. And um, it says a lot about the hubris or the ignorance of how we set Perth up. And for those of you who don't know, Perth is based on sand, probably the worst sandy soils in the world. And we took an English rule book of how to set up a civilization, because that's who colonized um, this Noongar land and this Aboriginal landscape. And their only guiding principles and, and knowledge was based on young, rich, soils with a cool temperate climate mm. and you bring mm. that rule book that understanding of farming and landscaping and gardening to the worst soils in the world with a semi-arid climate and it was always going to fail so whilst you could get away with putting fast acting fertilizers onto heavier soils because you knew they were going to lock and hold on to those nutrients and the biological life was such that it would de denitrify and and help to reduce the worst impacts of that. On sandy soil, it was just a recipe for disaster. Over 95% of those nutrients leak straight through. Mm. So, as you said, most of those nutrients just ended up growing another type of plants. They were just algae in our rivers. 
So it's only now that we're beginning to realise that in Perth, hey, actually, you need to have clay as, as the universal currency. Until you add the clay to the sandy soils, you have nothing that's going to hold those nutrients in place. And therefore, most is leaked and lost. And from what I understand, um, the geography of Perth is quite similar to Los Angeles as well, with the Sacramento River right. um, coming through there. Okay. Um, and it, uh, from from what I've read at least, uh, you know, they're 15 to 20 years ahead of us mm. in terms of development. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think we could learn from them or from other um, cities or other cultures? Yeah, well, I, I remember Sue Murphy, who's the head of the Water Corp, she gave a talk here and she said, I wish we'd been colonised by the Spaniards or the Turks or the Italians or the Greeks. And she said, not just because you'd have men with lovely black flowing hair, but because they, they have a, a semi-arid climate already mm. and a semi-arid culture. So they understood the sort of plants that needed to be used. They understood that you needed to build that soil up. And as I said, the poor old palms, they came here and they just had no idea. Mm. So we can learn from other parts of the world. And one of my, my next projects that I'd like to do is... Um, is to look at farming systems around the world where they've got it right, mm. where they've been farming the same area for hundreds of years. It's in a steady state. The the biology of the soil is is steady or improving. The ecological frameworks are fine. The quality of the water, um, the, the societies that live and depend on those areas are functional. All those big tick things. And that's pretty easy to do. And wherever you go from the steps of... Um, uh, the Mongolian plateau to the to the terraces of Bali or Indonesia through to, as I mentioned, England or some of those semi-arid agricultural regions where they have been farming the same area for hundreds of years and they're doing it well, every one of them would have perennial agriculture and soil health as the cornerstones mm. of their mm-hmm. success. Yeah. Now, they may not consciously, again, have studied it and made that link, but they just have learned intuitively and through their natural farming methods that that's what you need to do. So when you look at our agricultural systems here in WA, where we've cleared all the perennial systems and where we are giving it a diet of chemical fertiliser, well, you'd be a brave agricultural minister to stand up and with hand on heart say, I'm very happy with that form of agriculture. It's going to serve us well 50, 100, 1,000 years from now. Because it mm-hmm. won't. It's just, it can't. We already know those systems are collapsing. Mm-hmm. So for me, studying and looking at other parts of the world where they have tree crop or perennial agriculture and where they look at all these different broad-scale strategies to improve the health of the soil and the biology, that's what we need to be learning from. And linked in with all the things we're talking about here with our home. When you have societies that have less of a footprint, so they need less water, they need less energy, they create less waste, that takes pressure off at the other end as well. Mm. So your farming improves and then the societies that depend upon them are not creating as many demands or producing as much crap for us to have to deal Mm -hmm. with as well. So they're the things that we need to be doing now and into the future. Yeah. And so, again, your place is an example of that. And as we walk from the back, mm-hmm. coming around the front here, we see, well, there's, there's plants everywhere. Yes. And they're, they're placed um, quite strategically. That's uh, right. In terms of uh, food production, but also for shade. And yes. you want to tell us a little bit about that in relation yeah. to the house? Yeah, so uh, in the wintertime, my food growing becomes mobile. And I just harvested some potatoes out of that pot 
yesterday. We got about a third of a bucket of potatoes oh, cool. out of there. And so this is, at this time of the year in Perth, it's a cool temperate climate. In other words, you can give your plants full exposure to the sun and they love it. Fast forward three months and full exposure to the sun here is is disaster for a lot mm. of these plants. Okay, um, we have some big trees in the landscape. So some gorgeous honey locust, Gladitsia tricanthos, which is um, a wonderful low chill deciduous tree. Now in Perth, we actually have very mild sum, uh, winters. So the typical traditional deciduous tree doesn't work. Case in point, look at that liquid amber. We're just looking in the neighbor's yard and that is technically a deciduous tree, but it's hardly even changed colour, let alone lost all of its leaves. Yeah. And I've, no, I've noticed even in um, some of the frangipanis, which usually yeah. lose their leaves, this year haven't, haven't lost no. all their leaves. That's right. So for us in this situation here, this beautiful tree, we can depend on it to be a low chill variety, which means as soon as there's the first hint of cold weather, it loses its leaves. So that then means it's butted up against my house. So it means my house is flooded with winter sun. And then in another month's time, this will be a burst of yellow and it will shade the house over the ensuing summer. Yeah. And look, again, these are age-old principles, you know. We've only had th air conditioner in the last 20 years as a seen as a staple. And yet, again, for thousands of years, humans have had to learn to use other coping strategies to survive in tough climates. We're mm -hmm. not the first generation to have to deal with hot summers or cold winters. Or, you know, we just have used artificial strategies to try and control that. And whilst it seems to be a very effective way of doing it. You can have this room at 22 degrees for Nana and this room at 35 degrees where you want to do your Bikram yoga. It seems like a very sophisticated way of controlling the um, impacts of the outside climate. What it's meaning is massive, massive uh, impacts in terms of our energy consumption. Mm -hmm. And we have lost three prime ministers in this country over energy and over climate, and that all comes back to the fact people don't like paying high power bills, but what they don't recognise is the way they design their houses and the way they live forces them to use artificial energy-hungry mm. systems to supplement or replace age-old passive landscaping systems. Mm -hmm. It seems crazy to me to, to think that, uh, or that, that, that as a society we can think that technology mm. is uh, going to make us immune mm. uh, well to the effects of climate to to the effects of the amount of water that we actually have to use and yeah. the, the the temperature um, and the energy as well like yeah. you said that's that's a, a a massive demand especially in Perth where it gets so hot and then we don't think it gets cold here but you know it was just the other morning it was like almost zero degrees mm, mm. and Perth houses are not, not no, designed no. to be insulated like that at all. That's right. And um, yeah, and that, that that's a big part. So if we come around here a bit more, we'll be able to see. So the house, as we say to people, your house is a glorified box. It may be filled with the most fancy gadgets. It might have been designed to meet the latest aesthetic codes, but its ability to keep you comfortable depends on how well it buffers against the extremes outside. Because mm -hmm. the most important thing is, the more extreme the weather outside, zero degrees, as you said, or 45 degrees, nature 
wants to make it that temperature inside your house. It's just yeah. the second law of thermodynamics, or is it the first? Everything moves towards an equal state of equilibrium. Yeah. I paraphrase that shamelessly. <laughs> but what we've done here is we've made sure that we have these solar pergolas so we can shut out the sun when we don't want it. We've got double glazing, triple insulation in the walls. We painted the roof white. We have insulation under the floor. And all of this is about reminding us that the house, it's like a bucket. If you've if you plugged up one hole, but there's more holes still, it's still not working effectively. Mm. And each one of these gaps is, is an opportunity for the heat to come in in summer or the heat to leave your house in winter. And as you said, you know, our houses are just really badly designed in Perth. Mm -hmm. So we've made a lot of efforts here. So this house, um, when we bought it, probably would have had an energy rating or a star rating of one and a half and we've been able to nudge it up to about eight and a half stars by doing all these different things. And um, it means we don't have air conditioner in the house, which means we really don't get power bills most of the time. Mm, that's fantastic. I mean, you've, you've, create, or you've developed this house to be part of nature mm. rather than separate from nature, isn't that right? That's right. And you know, we talked about the garden being the biggest room in the home. We had breakfast out here yesterday in this glorious sunshine you're looking out over that garden you just can't help but be buoyed by that and that's an important part of all of this <laughs> i thought that might have been the neighborhood cat that comes oh, in here oh. the only animal that's not welcome in my garden is the prowling cat mm. but um the thing too about this garden is that uh 30 years or oh, not even that much 20 years ago this was lawn and three cocos palms I love, I love <laughs> just looking out here now. It's, it's completely different than just a few mm. palms, which uh, yes. cocos palms are just not the right thing in Perth. No, that's um, right. So, so tell us what we're looking at, Chris. Yeah, so we've got a mix of deciduous and lots of natives. The deciduous are the big trees that, as I said, are gonna shield the house from the summer sun and let in the winter uh, winter sun and we've got lots of understory native species so there's about 30 native species in here uh, including things like sandalwood we've got some wheat belt acacias this is a beautiful wheat belt um, eucalypt with gray leaves and these bright pink gaudy flowers mm. um, eremophilas uh, a coastal ground cover called um, coastal sword sedge bird baths and then everlastings. I'm a huge fan of everlastings. And, and the thing I try and remind people is that humans have a desire for colorful, gaudy plants. And there's no problem with that at all. What we need to be saying to people is if, if you want a certain style of garden, well, we need to come up with more appropriate species to meet that particular need. So mm -hmm. you've got here these gorgeous everlastings and I would defy anyone on the planet to not think that they're absolutely beautiful. And they are, and they will fill that void, which was typically um, filled with things like our pansies. So we're just looking at a very typical European plant and they're beautiful plants. I'm not denying that for a moment, but as soon as we start to try and grow a thing like a pansy in Perth in the middle of summer, mm. it, the, if the plant could talk, it would say, what the hell are you doing yeah. putting me into this? What did I do to deserve such a terrible um, life and um, so at this time of the year, we can grow a lot more of those bright, colorful plants. And out the front here, I'm looking at one of my favorite trees. This is called the Eucalyptus vitrix, which is the dwarf ghost gum. And 
when you are getting a hotter, drier climate as Perth is, we need to be recruiting plants that are adapted to even tougher conditions than what we have and what we will need to face. Mm. So this guy grows right in the desert regions of Australia. Super tough plant. So this plant is now here and it's surrounded by a lot of paving. We tried to get rid of it. In fact, you were a big part of getting rid of some of this, weren't mm -hmm. you, Ben? Yep. Um, but we know on a 45-degree day, this is going to be close to 60 degrees here. On the concrete? Yeah, radiating that heat back. And yet that tree will just just go, is that the best you can do? It's mm -hmm. just adapted to hot, dry conditions. Um, whereas our food-growing plants at this time of the year, yep, they're fine, but if I had them out here in the middle of summer, they would be destroyed. They're just shattered, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. So that's part of, and we talk about reading the landscape. If you can read the landscape, and that's a fancy way of being able to say, you, yeah, you're in tune with those natural systems. You start to be able to understand them and you work with them. Mm. And anyone that's good at anything, when we see an amazing cricketer or a basketballer or a footballer and they just seem to be able to read the play, be a couple of seconds ahead of everyone else, that's what we need to get to as gardeners, yeah. where our connection to nature is such that Things that we take for granted, other people go, how the hell did you learn to do that? You go, well, you just follow the natural systems yeah. and cycles. Yeah. Nature really is our teacher, isn't Yeah, she? absolutely. And every single one of these plants is giving something different to the garden. Smell, colour, texture. They're taking something different out of the soil. They have all of those uh, co extraordinarily complex relationships going on below the ground. And the thing we all, always say to people as well is, the bit that is absolutely critical to your plant's health and well-being is the root system. Mm -hmm. And that's the one bit that you never see. Yeah. Because unless you buy a bare root plant or you pull your plant out of the pots and tease away all of the soil, you're never going to see the root system. Mm -hmm. So that just reminds me again that um, the health of the soil is one of the only ways we can guarantee that the plants that we buy with deformed root systems or otherwise are going to do well in that, in mm -hmm. that landscape. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they won't. And we will have people at workshops who will say, I put this plant in or I put a row in and one plant just doesn't seem to do well in that group. And we'll often say, it just might be a dud. It might have yeah. a bad root system. And you'll never know because you don't see the root system. Yeah. You see maybe the outside, a few flecks, but you, you're not seeing the root system. And here in Perth, we, we have that sandy soil, especially mm. on, on, on the flats. Yes. Um, what do you call that, that sand again? The that the Bassendine sand? Bassendine yes, sand. Yes, yep. Right. So there's the five different types, but the Bassendine is by far the worst. Yeah. And that and that's quite ancient, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Everything about this landscape is ancient. Mm. Um, which reminds me, you know, again, that there's so much wisdom and knowledge and understanding that we just need to reconnect to. Yeah. Or connect yeah. to for the first time. So um, I was uh, talking to someone the other day, then they were talking about, like, whether it's clay soil or sandy soil, doesn't necessarily mean whether it's healthy or not healthy, but it's um, the ecosystem that's around there mm. um, uh, can tell you whether you know a place is healthy or not healthy. For example, when I was driving here, coming up through, um, uh, driving down one of the, the road, actually called Forest Road, I <laughs> yeah. believe. Yes, um, yes. And all the, there's all these fences up mm. and they've done all this clearing mm. Um, mm. Off of this, um, is it Bankshire Woodland or Banks, Bankshire? Bankshire and Charra Woodland, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, which is like, takes quite a while to, um, to oh. develop, doesn't it? Absolutely. And now they just 
um, flattened it all out, mm. and now they're not going to do anything with that. Yeah, they're going to let it re, re, re-vegetate. So we had a recent state election um, for our local government and um, one of the big differences between the two parties was uh, whether they were going to continue with that road development or they were going to return it back to bushland. And I'm pleased to say that the wisdom of the community prevailed and we now have a government that's chosen to stop that um, road madness and they're going to encourage that to re- rehabilitate. Yeah. So, that, so it was cleared for, for, um, for roads, to, for yeah. roads um, but unfortunately it, it's not going to get back to the same way no. it was. No, well, yeah, I kind of have um, a philosophical view when it comes to bush regeneration and, again, when you think of the Australian landscape, once upon a time it was all unin- uninterrupted ecosystems and now it's massively fragmented in the wheat belt, less than five or ten percent of that original bushland is left Mm. urban areas there might be a little bit more but it's all fragmented and when we're looking at healing or regenerating bushlands it's a little bit like and forgive this analogy but it's a little bit like a human in a car accident some instances you you're in a car accident you come out you've few scratches and you will heal very quickly and Mm. no one will know in a few months that you're in an accident Mm -hmm. other car accidents for those less fortunate it's a catastrophic impact Mm. and they may survive they may have lost arms or mobility or terrible facial scarring or whatever it is and we with all our science can make them functional but they'll never be as they were before Mm. and where i'm going with that it's the same with our ecosystems if there's only a little bit of weed intervention and very little grazing with with the removal of those pressures it will bounce back But in some bushland areas, it's so degraded. I'm thinking of farms where it's been grazed for maybe 100 years. There's no native seed left in that soil. You can regenerate that bushland, but Mm. just like the really uh, damaged human being, which will need massive medical intervention, you will need lots of biological intervention. Mm. So removal of of grazing animals, uh, uh, treatment of disease, weed control and then maybe direct seeding and planting to try and put back something Mm. which is ecologically um, positive and productive, but it will probably never be as it was before. Right, yeah. So getting back to row eight, there are some patches that will regenerate very quickly and there will be very little need for human intervention. Other areas where they're flanked by weedy environments or there's already weeds there, there's going to need to be a lot of intervention. Mm. So do you think that... um uh, you know, you mentioned uh, grazing animals. Mm-hmm. Do you think they have a place in the natural environment in, in the bushland in Australia or should we not have them here at all? I think we can have them and I think... And plants are meant to graze and... Sorry, plants are meant to be grazed and it's a question of the species and the carrying capacity of the landscape and the management of that mm. land. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, um, and I do a lot of land care work and, and perennial pastures for farms. I'm a big fan of grazing animals if it's done well. And, that, and the caveat is, yes, you understand the soil, you build that soil up with all those things we talked about, mm. and you recognise the carrying capacity of that land and you right. manage the grazing on rotation. That's the thing people fall down on, is that in the wild, when you look at herds of wildebeests or, or um, animals on the steppes of Mongolia, they grazed in mobs and they moved mm, through. They never right. stayed in the same place. And they're moving through, eating all the food, the grass, when it's at its best, by the way, mm. 
They were only going to eat the best quality stuff and they're leaving behind them a trail of manure. Mm -hmm. And they will then move through and on a cycle based on the natural cycles of the, of the environment we talked about, they'll probably end up coming back to that space in 12 to 18 months. Yeah. In which time their manure is composted down, the plants have regrown, they're vigorous, they're strong and they're healthy. So grazing, if it's done well, is on rotation with the right species at the right densities. Yeah. With yeah. an under, with a, with a foundation again of perennial. We need perennial grasses. Most of the, the most widely, this is the most amazing thing, the most widely planted, sorry, the most widely distributed plants in the Australian landscape were perennial grasses. Mm. They were everywhere. But because we bought in a European style of agriculture and cloven hoofed animals and we didn't understand the subtleties, we grazed those areas out. Yeah. And yeah. the weeds moved in, the fire weeds, we then tr got on a bandwagon of bringing in plants from other parts of the world and they become weeds as well. Um, so we lost the, the, the integrity of those grazing systems. Yeah. And, and like you're talking about, Chris, um, I've, I've been so impressed by... Um, Polyface farms, you know, Joel Salatin and what he's been doing and, um, you know, over the, I think, 50 years they've owned that farm and, mm. and managed that farm. It's about the management. And I get excited about Western Australia with a million square kilometres mm. with all this diversity um, um, in the um, climate, mm. but also a lot of it is like where it would have been grasses. Yes. Um, and some of the research from people like um, Dr. Elaine Ingham mm -hmm. talking about uh, grasslands are actually the most fertile mm. lands in the world yeah, and yeah. productive lands in the world. Absolutely. And, and we have a million square kilometres mm. with only two million people, mm. you know, and most of them live in Perth. So, so what could we do mm. if we um, understood um, the management uh, to to really build up the soils in Western Australia. Yeah, look, I agree. And um, you look at this plant here, so I'm just bending down and picking up a blue bush. Now, this is now one of the most beautiful, striking, stunning, architecturally interesting plants that is now being put in Uvo Gardens. But this is actually a plant <clears throat> that grows in the most inhospitable salt scolds of the West Australian wheat belt. Mm. So this incredible plant is part of that resurgence of, of those natural ecosystems. So what I get really excited about is the ability to be able to put um, these landscapes back together with a suite of grasses, deep-rooted perennial grasses, and then some of the shrubs as well. Mm. So I, mm. I challenge grasslands, pasture, very, very important, but I also look at things like the impact of wind. We're the third windiest part of the world, so we need yeah. to break those winds. So I think wind breaks, shelter belts uh, are an important part of that process, and that's fine. You put a green framework about around those pasture areas, but you also then are improving the microclimate. Yeah. And as I mentioned a little earlier, some of the most productive, sustainable and successful farming systems on the globe all have the integration of trees and shrubs, mm. integration and or retention. And when you look at English agriculture, what did they invent? The hedgerow and the mm. cops. We should have brought all of that over, but we didn't. Mm. And we're only now beginning to come up with our equivalent, and that's with fodder systems, with tachycystae and acacia saligna and the blue bushes I mentioned and salt bushes, and they can be trimmed and kept as hedges. And they're a fabulous way to stretch that productivity because each plant as well is taking something different out of the soil. Mm. So mm -hmm. a deep-rooted shrub is going to have a, a manifest a suite of nutrients in a different way than a grass. So that means your animals get a smorgasbord of food to mm. eat from.
And that's exactly what the bush, even when you look at a prairie, which you might think superficially or from a distance is one species, it's actually sometimes hundreds of species per hectare. Wow, yeah. And therefore a grassland is just, and that's really what Dr Ingham is really telling us, is grasslands are far from monotonous, far from monoculture, and far from being inferior to forest lands. <clears throat> if they're managed well, deep-rooted species, they can be extraordinarily productive, diverse ecosystems and wonderful at ca capturing and storing carbon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let, let's um, step back from... Western Australia or mm. even Australia mm. for um, a second. Yep. But, um, you know, you're, you're demonstrating to people here um, at your place um, or using your place as a demonstration for what people can do. Um, could you tell us a few things that people could do mm -hmm. no matter where they live? Yeah. So sort of more generalised um, points, but things that people could do no matter where they live, some either permaculture principles mm. or some principles that they could use in their garden. Okay, awesome question. <clears throat> Number one, I guess on a deep philosophical or even a spiritual level is truly accept where you are. Mm. And that seems kind of like a throwaway line, but it means understanding the climate and the inherent nature of where you live. So when I see suburbs in Perth where they have palms everywhere, on a, on, a, on a level that the owner may not even be conscious of, they are trying to fight against the natural order of things and say, I'm in Bali. Mm. I'm going to build my Bali paradise, which, of course, you can't mm. because this is not Bali. This is the wrong soils and the wrong climate. And even if we had the resources, it would never fulfil those needs and responsibilities. That's not to say you can't create that framework that you're after. <clears throat> with beautiful trees and shrubs, it's just different species. Mm -hmm. So number one is accept where you are. Number two is orientation. So simple things like finding where north is. Once you know where north is, that's the enigma code. You unlock all the information about, okay, well, if I know I am now facing north in Perth, I know, and you can find this out anywhere, your local Bureau of Meteorology will be able to tell you where the prevailing winds come from, at what time of the year, are they hot winds, are they cold? Where's the sun rising and setting so you can start to make sense of your climate? Mm. So for us in Perth, we know that um, 21st of December, the longest day of the year, the sun is rising in the southeast, setting in the southwest gets to 82 degrees. Mm. <clears throat> 21st of June, the shortest day of the year, it's rising in the northeast, setting in the northwest gets to 32 degrees. Mm. It's a completely different beast, completely different impact on the house. Mm. As soon as you understand that, then you can then marshal and set forth all of the various plant systems and, and built structures that are going to harness the bits that you want and shut down the bits that you don't want. Mm. So anyone can do that anywhere, and that's the basics of passive solar landscaping and permaculture. They sort of morph. Okay, so they're really, really important parts of that process. And, and accepting that uh, becomes really, really important. And then understanding a little bit about the limits of where you live. So for us, the limits are water, energy, and productivity of our landscapes. Mm -hmm. And once you know those limits, or the things that are really the, um, the things that are, are really hampering our, our society, they're the things that we need to use less of. Yeah. Poor old uh, Texas at the moment are probably 
dying to give us as much of their water as they possibly yeah. can. But um, I guess that's the point is if you now know that you live in a society where there is less water and it is dwindling, then you don't say, well, I'm going to put in massive aquaculture systems or if you're a farmer, I'm going to go into rice production or something yep. with overhead irrigation because you just go, well, you're going to run into troubles into the future. Either you run out of water or it becomes prohibitively expensive or you find you're butting up against regulations. Mm-hmm. So accepting where you are and working within those constraints is important. And that shouldn't be seen as a negative thing. That's just adapting to where you are. And as human beings, we adapt all the time. We adapt to becoming a teenager, then we adapt to being an adult and then an older person. We have to adapt through our entire life. Mm. So this is just another form of adaptation. And a, and a psychologist would tell you, if you look at the, 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 those key points of a human in, in their development, first is denial, and then there is probably anger, and then there is acceptance, and then through that comes agreement. This is where I'm meant to be. This makes sense to do it this way. Mm. So when I, going back to someone with the barley palms in the yard and no trees, they're in denial. They're, they're saying there's no problems. I can just build what I like, where I like, and there won't be any consequences. Yeah. And I will be a healthy, happy, rounded human being. And of course, we know that's not the case. Mm-hmm. I love the way that you look at everything um, holistically, Chris, and um, you, you know, you've, you've been a mentor to me. <laughs> so I really thank you for sharing oh. your wisdom. Is there any uh, one last bit of wisdom or something, philosophy that you would love to um, just leave people with before we finish up? So, um, you know, <clears throat> what I always say to people is find that connection to nature. You know, we, we have to make the effort to, to, to have those connections, whether it's a walk in a forest, a walk on a beach, or getting your hands in your garden. We as human beings suffer when we are not connected to nature. Mm. It's just that simple. Um, so I'd urge every single person, and probably if you listen to the show, you're already intuitively linked to that, but it's letting anyone you know, and your young generation, I say that um, the greatest gift we can give our next our, gener- our kids, our grandkids, besides a good home, is a love and affection for nature, a true, deep understanding connection to nature. Mm. Because when they get hit sideways by a bad exam result, the boyfriend that dumps them, not enough likes on their latest Facebook post, whatever it is, if they truly are, are going into a tailspin over something, if they know they can take a walk on a beach, if they intuitively know that if they get out in the garden or go for a walk in the forest or drink from a mountain stream that they know they will feel better, Mm. that will be the greatest gift you can give them. Mm -hmm. Because we all get hit sideways by life, but if we know that nature will always be that constant non-judgmental ally, its it's restorative powers are just extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So, um, we probably know that listening to this this podcast, your your listeners will know, but it's the next generation instilling them in them that. And as well, when they get into positions of authority, they're not going to look at a forest as something that should be cleared for a freeway yeah. or chipped up to be exported as wood chips. They're going to say, that's madness. It has so many values standing that mm. we wouldn't even consider that. Yeah. And, uh, and people who make those sort of decisions, which we look at as abhorrent, um, those people have, have suffered from nature deficit disorder. Mm. They just did not have a connection to nature. They don't have a connection to nature and you don't value what you don't love. That's right. Wow. 
That's great, Chris. Thank you so much um, for your time. It's my absolute pleasure. And I would love for you to plug anything that you want, okay. um, share any ways that people can connect with All you. Right. Thank you. And the Forever Project, so if you Google the Forever Project, um, um, you'll find all of the events, including the home opens. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, doing, we're doing something really cool called Food Theatre, which you, you know about, where we team up a celebrity chef with our gardeners to remind people that food is only as good as the way that it's grown. Mm. Um, and then we have the Leadership Excellence series, the series that you're involved with, Lex, Leadership Excellence, and um, people can find out about that. Our next evening is the 21st of... September, and that's about teaching the next generation what leadership is. Mm-hmm. And leadership is based on love, not fear. The great leaders of the world would have at their core, the great leaders, those that we admire, whose quotes we have on our bathroom walls or mm. we look to on the, the flip chart on the desk, those great leaders um, had love at their core. Yeah. And through love comes trust and hope and optimism and connectedness and and, and a, a yearning to connect with people, not divide. Mm-hmm. And f- people that are racked with fear manifest that as anger and hate and bigotry and racism and, and, and massive extraordinary expenditure on armaments and, and fighting, whereas love has a completely different gives you a completely different outlook. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort yeah. of leadership that we want to instill through these leadership excellence courses. So you got your website mm-hmm. um, and you got a social media presence at all? We do. So the Forever Project as well. We've got um, Facebook um, and Instagram, the Forever Project, you'll find the us. The Forever Project. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll uh, link those all in the notes as well. Awesome. Thanks, Chris, for that great chat. I really enjoyed that walking around your garden. And so what did you guys think? Were you inspired by that? Uh, Was there any takeaways for you? I'd love to hear a bit about what you thought of that. And did you like that format with me walking around with the portable recorder? Um, Yeah, I really enjoyed seeing the different parts of the garden and talking about it at the same time. Let me know what you think. And if you like where this is going, some of the themes that we're talking about, click that subscribe button because that will help us to get out there and connect with more people who might actually find this useful. Also, if you are in Perth, if you live around the area, Chris's open house is on September 16th and 17th. So that's a Saturday and Sunday. Um, I'll be there on the Saturday talking about compost and building soil health. So that's it for now. Thanks for listening. And until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.